Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Amy Koppelman. She is the author of I Smile Back and Hesitation Wounds. She's a screenwriter, director, producer, and illustrator of A Mouthful of Air, a film based on the novel of the same name, which we will be discussing today. A Mouthful of Air, of course, is published by our friends at $2 Radio. Amy, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And first, Amy, this novel was published originally almost 20 years ago. Uh, What has the journey been like with this book to see it published then and then again now by $2 Radio? Well, I, I think particularly because you are an independent bookstore, you understand how important it is, uh, how, how important an independent press is. Mm-hmm. 20 years ago and till today, I can't, even if I wanted to, figure out how to get on a mainstream press because mm-hmm. mainstream presses are um, scared of, of things that... Um, they think might offend people. And uh, that hasn't changed. I think there are more voices uh, now and there's more opportunity for people to speak. When when I started out 20 years ago, it's funny, mm-hmm. Barnes and Noble was the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Barnes and Noble was the enemy and you only wanted to go to independent bookstores because you didn't want Barnes and Noble mm-hmm. to win. And mm-hmm. then Amazon became you know, took over Barnes and Noble. And so it's harder and harder for um, independent bookstores to stay um, alive. People always argue about Amazon. I feel like Amazon is not the terrible thing that people think because I have been able to read a lot of good self-published work on Amazon. Mm -hmm. And I know that when my book went out of print, it was available on Amazon. Mm -hmm. So the question of Amazon the idea of accessibility is is tricky, mm. but the, but the importance of an independent bookstore and an independent press hasn't changed. And mm. Eric and Eliza are so um, I always say they're purists mm. because they didn't care about publishing republishing this book because it was a movie. Uh, they had to sit and read it and really think about it and consider mm. it <laughs> mm. and. Um, you know, they're just really, really thoughtful, good, smart people. They yeah. published I Smile Back, which was rejected by, I think, 81 publishers. I think they were the 81st publisher to publish oh, I Smile Back. I wonder if there even are 81 publishers anymore. Probably not. And they were yeah. scared. And in fact, by the time Eric got I Smile Back, I had had a different ending on it, which was a little bit more... Hmm, palatable. Uh, and Eric said, listen, uh, I, I just have one question. Would you mind taking off that tacked on ending? Like he knew mm-hmm. he's just such a good reader that he could just tell that tonally it didn't feel right to him. So, um, I do have to say that I love Eric and Eliza and I was the, uh, I think the first, um, member of the $2 radio tattoo club that wasn't an employee of $2 radio. So Wait, you have it, you have I'm a sure tattoo. Yep. Yep. Let me see. Um, like, I don't know if I can roll my sleeve up that far, but oh. let's see here. I'll try. Yeah, yeah. Can you see? Right oh now? my God, that's so cool! 
that's amazing a champion of theirs for years um very cool well thank you amy i have to ask you next uh what was the experience like adapting this novel that you wrote um several years ago into a screenplay for a film you know i never of everything i wrote i never thought that this would get made into a movie because it's such a difficult subject matter Mm -hmm. but i thought um that if there was a way to figure out how to put all of Julie's interior thoughts on the page mm. um, and to find an actress good enough to play the role that maybe we would finally be able to um, reach people and help people because people are you know, more able to talk about mental illness, mm. uh, motherhood, we're so shameful. Um, our, our pe- women are still plagued with shame but uh, they talk about it a tiny bit more. Right. And uh, do you mean what was the experience? Like what was the actual experience? Yeah, just adapting something that um, you wrote, you know, um, probably one or two books ago into a screenplay. Like, did you have to revisit it? Did you have to like refresh your memory and read the book again? Yeah, I mean, I had to constantly, you know, tell myself, uh, every time I saw a sentence that I would have written differently or a paragraph um, to ignore that. But uh, instead of making fun of myself, I'll answer seriously. I didn't realize until I started doing these podcasts, um, people always ask me if that book is autobiographical and it isn't autobiographical. And I just learned a new term, autofiction. Mm. I don't even really think it's autofiction, but all the feelings of shame and self-loathing, the self-doubt, all of that were mine. And um, seeing the book from so many years later, having, I guess, written through the fear of what if I hadn't gotten the help I needed and having adult children that, you know, I didn't hurt in in any way other than giving away two puppies because mm. um, I couldn't, couldn't handle a dog, mm. uh, you know, um, I didn't realize how uh, um, emotional it would be. And and um, in a way I was very happy because I had gotten so far from that character. But, you know, I think anyone who's suffered from depression it, it always is looking over their shoulder, mm-hmm. uh, waiting for it to come back and swallow them. So in writing the scenes, I thought, Well, what happened was I was driving down the West Side Highway in New York City and I heard this woman call in and she called in a radio show and she was lived in Iowa or somewhere and she was saying how ashamed she was because she was so sad and she had her child and she shouldn't be so sad. Everybody else in the mommy group seemed happy. And I realized she didn't know that other women were feeling like this. You know, in New York City, uh, in Los Angeles, in Chicago, people talk about these things I think you know are, are slightly more open about it. And I thought I need to come up with a way to reach somebody like that so they know that they're not alone. Mm-hmm. And so when I was going through the book, a lot of you know the interior thoughts repeat themselves uh, as all of our thoughts do. And then particularly when you're depressed, that cycle of I'm a bad mom, um, I'm a bad person, my children would be better off without me is constantly repeating. So. I looked at the scenes and I tried to, to collapse them so that 
you know, one scene would work in a movie and replace like four different scenes in a book. And I also made Julie um, a children's book illustrator hmm. so that that way the thoughts inside of her head, you could see what, what I never understand and what Julie doesn't understand is how somebody who sees all the beauty in the world is getting crushed by the beauty, hmm. um, by the fact that everyone you love, you're going to leave. And I find that depression is often um, portrayed as, you know, heavy black eyeliner <laughs> and Bradley Cooper. Um, and somehow everyone ends up okay. Or, you know, there's some kind of catharsis at the end. And I wanted to write about a woman who uh, was small, was, was overcome by the fragility of it all. And so um, when my daughter was little, she had uh, very bad eyes and she had to have a couple eye surgeries and the kids would teach tease her about wearing a patch. And um, I made this little character, Pinky Tinkerbink, who had a very ugly little pinky finger. And, um, but what she realizes by the end of the first little story I told her is that that pinky finger is what enables her to unlock things. Mm -hmm. And so for Julie, Julie now has this character, Pinky Tinkerbink, who helps children all over the world unlock their fears, but she can't figure out how to unlock her own. Mm -hmm. Wow, thank you so much, Amy. Um, I want to step away from the screenplay for a moment and dive into this book. And oh boy, Amy, what a powerful book this is. It's a sad novel um a very sad novel it is about many things and one of these things as you've been talking about is depression a line that is repeated throughout the novel is that depression is a disease no different than asthma um for our listeners can you elaborate on this thought tell us why it is important to note so many times that depression is a disease no different than asthma both for you, Amy, as an author and for your character, Julie? Well, this is one of the things that is different. I think more people understand that now. Um, but 18 years ago and still, and because of the nature of depression, which is constantly telling you what a bad person you are or how hopeless things are, um, you know, that, that also makes you more reticent to get help. But it was very important to me to take all the obstacles away from Julie to make her have uh, access to all the kind of help she needs. Um, you know, she doesn't have money problems. She can, you know, she sees a good psychiatrist and yet she still won't take the medicine because she still believes that in her head, she, um, she can be stronger. Mm -hmm. uh, that it's really because she's weak. And so I keep repeating that because when you have asthma, you take, you use your inhaler. You're not scared to, you, you don't look at the doctor and go, oh, this, this inhaler isn't, isn't real. You, you understand that you need it and it makes you be able to take in air. And so that was very important to me to try to say without like prophetizing, this is an illness mm -hmm. and you can get better. Today, we know that one out of every five women suffer from postpartum depression, even women who've never had any trauma in their childhood. Julie had trauma in her childhood, but, um, and uh, st still, you know, 
so many people live in shame and don't ask for help. So that's why, even though it seemed like a crazy idea to try to get a movie like this made or to try to get a book like this back in print when it was so hard to get in print in the first place, I thought for the woman that I had heard on the radio, well, I might as well try because what's the worst thing that's going to happen? People are going to say no, and, and that's okay. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Um, thank you, Amy. I want to try to understand Julie's situation uh, for a moment by talking about the people around her. Uh, first, her father. Can you tell us about Julie's father and why he is someone who is constantly in, around, and interrupting her thoughts? I think often when we have children, uh, we're, we're forced to um, recognize feelings that we've been, we've been able to um, repress. You know, we get so good at pushing things out of our mind and then we see our child and all of a sudden, it looks, I remember one time it looked like a little kid was about to hit my son. And I mean, I think I flew like across the playground because I was, you know, um, on guard, so scared of anybody hitting either my children or, you know, abusing my children in, in any way. And so I think for Julie, she's been able to block out uh, different trauma from her youth. And then having this child makes her, it forces her to confront it. And the way in which she's confronting it is this terrible fear that she is going to hurt her child, her children in the same ways in which she's been hurt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, thank you, Amy. And I next would like to ask about Julie's mother. Um, Julie has a complicated relationship with her mother and with her mother's relationship with her father. Uh, can you tell us about how Julie's relationship with her mother evolved from Julie's observations of her mother as a child to her final understanding of her mother as a survivor? It's funny, no one ever really paid attention to that, uh, that, con that idea of her being a survivor. And uh, this time around, people asked me about that. And I think there's two things in thinking back about Julie, which I don't, I don't think I realized as I was um, writing the book. I mean, just to diverge for a second, um, I didn't set out to write this story. In fact, when I got to the ending and I wrote the final scene, my fingers jumped off the keyboard because I was like, I didn't even know if it was possible for a mother to hurt her own child. And I went to the computer, and this is so long ago uh, that there wasn't Google, it was Ask Jeeves. Mm -hmm. And I typed in, can a mother hurt her child? And that was the first time I saw the words postpartum depression. Some A mother had posted uh, a tribute to her daughter and had like a rudimentary butterfly. Um, and so in retrospect, all these years later, I, I realized that what I was doing, as I said before, was writing through the fear of what if I didn't get the help that I needed. Um, and I think in the process, um, like Julie, I was coming to terms with um, understanding that the shame that I was carrying around and feeling um, wasn't wasn't real. Like I, I really wanted to write about shame. This I did know when I started the book. Uh, real shame for the things we've done wrong, and 
um, the shame we feel within ourselves that for things that we're not even guilty of. And I think that Julie feels that her father stopped loving her mother and somehow it was her fault. Um, and so that's one thing that she feels shameful about. At, at the same time, she's realizing maybe she shouldn't feel ashamed. And she's also seeing her mother who seems, um, you know, somewhat shallow, uh, being able to continue and smile in ways that she only wishes she could. Mm -hmm. So she's, I think like all daughters, she's comparing um, herself to her mother in terms of her mother having an ability that she doesn't seem to have, which is the ability to continue and to put on the mask. And mm -hmm. Julie's no longer by the time she recognizes this in her mother, really able to do that. Thank you, Amy. And I have to say, as a reader, um, when I finished reading the ending, my fingers flew off the pages of the <laughs> book, too. That was, it was uh, such a great book and such a hard ending to read as a parent um, and such a hard ending to write, I'm sure. You said, um, you, um, wait, do you, do you, is it okay to mention kindergarten drop-off? Yeah, of course. You have a kid? Okay. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. You said, uh, could we change the time for kindergarten drop-off? Mm -hmm. And I thought oh, he's a dad and he has a kindergartner. Mm -hmm. And is this your first child? Yes. A, a boy? A, a boy. girl? A, what's his name? Uh, his name is Van, B-A-N. Oh, that's a cool name. And, you know, you bring, you bring your kids to kindergarten and you entrust them mm -hmm. with these teachers that you don't know. And um, in this world, it seems so big and scary. <laughs> and... It is big and scary. And if we've learned um, anything over the past 10 years, it's it can also be very mean, um, meaner than I think I ever really could have imagined. And, you know, I think hopefully, even if you're not somebody who suffers from depression and you're just a parent, um, I think you could still find a lot of truth in Julie's story because I think all of us are very scared um, about protecting our children mm. and keeping them safe. And um, the other day, I somebody asked me a question and I, I had said that I had been like at a coffee place and I saw these three moms and they had their strollers and they were talking and one mom was like, I only let Johnny have 15 minutes of screen time every day. How, how many minutes do you have? And the other mother was like, well, no, I mean, I mean, literally this was the conversation. Um, it, then it became about cookies. Well, you know, we only give organic cookies and organic fruits and they're talking. And at first, you know, I wanted to say to them, you know, none of this matters, you know, cause when you're, when you have little kids, people always have that annoying expression, little kids, little problems, big kids, big problems. But I realized as I was sitting, you know, at the next table that, um, we all hold on to these ideas that we think are going to protect our children. And, you know, if 15 minutes on screen time and organic cookies could only protect our children. And, you know, for a depressed person, the need to try to find some um, trampoline when they're in free fall so that they can be caught is, is just more profound. The, the difference between, um, what's real and what's not real and how close the danger is. Uh, when I say more profound, I don't mean more profound as if, as if they care more. I mean more profound as if they, they can't um, 
you know, mod- modulate it. Thank you so much, Amy. Um, listeners, we are going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Amy Copeland. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Amy Koppelman, author of A Mouthful of Air, which is published by our friends at $2 Radio. Um, Amy, continuing along the lines of speaking about Julie by first speaking of the characters around her, uh, please tell us about her brother, David, and how he is dealing with some of the same issues that Julie is dealing with, specifically their father's abandonment of their family. Well, I think she compares herself to her brother and unlike her mother, she she finds him um, more tragic because she thinks that even if he found love, he would never have the ability to um, accept it. Now, I'm not really sure if that's true or not, or if that was only her projection onto him. Um, but you know, that's, that's, uh, that's what her brother is to her. He, he's some, you know, he, it's as if both of them, you know, survived the same accident and one of them came out and just remembers it much differently or copes with it much differently. So, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And of course, I was going to say, I was going to say it's as if, they both were in the same war, but somebody was inside the house and somebody was outside the house. But mm. particularly with what's going on um, today, I didn't think war was a good analogy. But oh, right. if, if I'm being truthful, mm. I, th- I think that that's what she thinks. And uh, he numbs out. And I think part of her must be envious of him because she's not able to numb out anymore in the ways that she used to. Mm-hmm. Or, or doesn't want to anymore. Yeah, and of course, this kind of thing happens with siblings um, often. Uh, Amy, let's next talk about Julie's husband. Does he ever take Julie's depression seriously? Yeah, you know, um, maybe I did. Did I hope I did a better job of this in the movie? I, I think that he's always taken it seriously in my mind. I, as I, as I was saying earlier, I wanted to make sure that there were no obstacles. There were no excuses for her depression. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I didn't give her a mean husband who did anything mean to her. She has a nice husband. What I tried to show in the movie, and I'm, I'm not sure if it works in the book because other people have said that to me, is that, you know, when you love somebody who's depressed or somebody who's committed, tried to commit suicide, which is the most selfish thing you could do and never a good idea, Mm -hmm. even though uh, the depressed person 
might think they're doing everyone a huge favor. Mm -hmm. um, the collateral damage is uh, complete and you know total. And even if you survive, the people who love you are almost like emotional prisoners because they can't actually uh, engage with you the way you would with a normal person because they don't want to be the person you know that got in their mind that you know drove you to kill kill yourself. So I was trying to show that in the hus in the husband, and also that you know he didn't understand. Um, if we're going back to the asthma analogy, she's not wheezing, right? Mm -hmm. She's she's walking through the days. She's sitting at the table, and uh, he. I I don't find him as somebody who doesn't care. I I just thought he was somebody who didn't understand. Um, yeah, and I would totally agree with that. I mean, that was my view. Actually, was that um, he was someone who cared very much but didn't understand. Um, and though I have read um, commentary on the book that where people felt like he wasn't taking it seriously as well, but um, I'm wondering if his response to Julie's depression is kind of indicative of American society's view of depression as a whole. And what I mean by that is, though it has gotten better in the last 18 years or so since you've written the novel, um, there is this perception of some people that depression is something that people can just shake off or swallow away uh, with a medication. Um, do you find that people have that understanding or, or feeling about depression out there? I think a lot is still uh, misunderstood about medication. Mm -hmm. um, medication, and I'm obviously not a doctor, but uh, antidepressant medication is not the same um, as, you know, it doesn't numb you out like Xanax or any of those medications, which I've never actually taken, but I think are actually very evil drugs. All mm. it does is kind of put, as, as I was saying before, a, a trampoline under you. So when you're in emotional free fall, you are going to get caught. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's a lot of misperceptions. Oh, well, you know, if you take antidepressants, you can't be creative. If you take antidepressants, you don't want to have sex. If you take antidepressants, I'm forgetting so many of them, but mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't know anybody who, when they're depressed is like, Hey, you know, <laughs> let's, let's get it on. I don't know what the mm -hmm. right way to say it is, but like, you know, um, or I, I, and I know at moments of when I used to have very bad depression, I wasn't getting anything written. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I don't, I think it's important that people understand that it doesn't do those things. The, it doesn't have those side effects and it also, um, doesn't numb you out and make you a zombie. Mm -hmm. If you're taking the right medication and the right amount of it, it just makes you feel whole again. It makes you have the ability to cry mm -hmm. instead of being frozen in, in a very numb state. And um, I think more people know that now and there's more literature on it. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I don't believe in other f forms of therapy. I do. I think it's, I think you need to have talk therapy. I think there are many you know, I, there's many new forms of, of therapy from Keflax to MDMA, I mean, that are changing. And, uh, you know, electroshock therapy is really the gold standard of uh, care. And I've seen that change people's lives. But I still think at the core of it, people, people look at it as being weak. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I think that the person who suffers from it looks at it as being weak, because as I was saying before, that's, that is the refrain in your head. Mm. Uh, I'm bad. I'm weak. I don't deserve to be here. I'm going to be a bad mom. Mm. So um, I was trying to, in the book, then explain that. And I'm still trying to explain that. That's why I talk about myself um, a lot when I'm talking about Julie, even though, as I said before, it is not autofiction, um, but all those feelings are real. And I feel so grateful that I did get the help that I needed and I did get to see my children grow up. And, you know, there was a line, it was cut out of the movie, but where, where you saw Julie's daughter older and she said uh, she missed so much. And I thought, God, I would have missed everything. Like I would have missed both of those kindergarten drop-offs. I would have missed all that fear of non-organic cookies. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I, I guess it's still my mission in some tiny, tiny way to say to people to continue and to get help and to not be scared to ask for help. Mm -hmm. And I'm always surprised when I get emotional about it, but I guess if I'm really thinking about both the character Julie and the young woman who wrote that book, um, it's, it's, I'm older now, it's almost touching. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, anyway. Yeah, well, thank you, Amy. And I'm thankful for all of those things too. I'm thankful that you were there for those kindergarten drop-offs. Um, <laughs> As we said, just having going through one today uh, myself, I can imagine. But um, Amy, over the course of this novel, Julie, um, who has one child that turns one year old soon after the novel begins, uh, Julie becomes pregnant again. And it seems like from the moment this pregnancy is discovered, there is a heavy vibe of, oh, shit, she should not have this baby. Um and I'm not going to ask you if she should have had the baby, but what I will ask you is, uh, should this decision have been weighed more heavily and beyond Julie's own internal dialogues and pressures surrounding this decision, what of society's attempt um, to manage a woman's body and the consequences of pregnancy and childbirth? What does a situation like Julie's say to folks who believe uh, that Roe versus Wade should be overturned, for example? Wow, <laughs> there's so many, so many big questions in there. I wish I was smart enough to have um, any of the answers. Mm -hmm. At the time, and in this particular turn of the story, because I was, as, as I, I think I said, um, when I was writing this book, it was my first book, and I didn't even know that I was writing a book. I really, uh, I really, started writing it um, as a place to put the sadness inside of me. Um, I did tell this story, but hopefully um, <laughs> no one's heard me repeating myself, but I realized when I had an interview the other day that it was on, and this sounds so ridiculous, the day Kurt Cobain died, mm -hmm. that I realized how bad off I was and how desperately I didn't want to have that. And I did go and, and get help and I started writing and I was writing really just as a place to put the thoughts inside of my head. And, uh, and then when I got 
when I had, sorry, I had to think about your question for a second. And then mm -hmm. when I, um, at a certain point, I started taking antidepressants and all the things that people say, the good things were true. Everything went from black and white to color. I could feel everything again. I wasn't as weak physically and the clarity of thought, you know, being able to hear a song and cry from it versus being able to hear a song and feel nothing from it. Mm -hmm. th there is a difference there. Um, being able to see something that's beautiful and not feel crushed by it. And then when I got pregnant with my daughter, people really weren't sure, you know, what were the long-term ramifications of taking antidepressants. And um, like I mentioned earlier, my daughter had very bad crossed eyes. And I swear, if I had taken antidepressants when I was pregnant, I would have thought it was my fault that she had the crossed eyes. Now, of course, my brother had crossed eyes. My uh, uncle had crossed eyes. You know, that runs genetically in my family. But um, I was so petrified that I went off the antidepressant medication. And the darkness was unbearable. And at some point I went to see some doctor when I was trying to figure this out and she told me to get an abortion. Um, I am a very pro-choice person. I'm horrified at, uh, you know, the, the, the things that are going on in this country. Mm -hmm. But at that moment, the last thing in the entire world I wanted to do was get an abortion. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to figure out how to get through the pregnancy so I could be this baby's mom. Mm. Um, and uh, so, you know, for Julie in the book, it becomes more about breastfeeding and non-breastfeeding and what makes a good mother and what doesn't make a good mother. Um, but this issue of, I could answer it more this way, this issue of the infrastructure bill mm -hmm. and childcare, mm -hmm. <laughs> the, Helping families um, is is essential in and is the key to everything. Helping moms, you know, um, and you know, imagine if you're a single mother and not like Julie, and you don't have a husband. Imagine if you're working two minimum wage jobs. Imagine if you're unemployed. The last thing you're going to do is go to get help because you don't feel well. Like, of course, you don't feel well. How how well could you possibly, you know, uh, feel? So, um, I don't. I don't think it's an issue. I, I think it's good that people should be able to decide if they should have children, how many children they're capable of having and all of that. I don't, I don't really know how to answer those questions, but I do know that more attention needs to be paid to the core of a family and to the, uh, the idea that being a mother of really understanding the totality of, of what that means and what those obligations and responsibilities are. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if I answered that correctly. Yeah, you sure did. And, um, and speaking of Kurt Cobain, I think this is the second or third time um, he's come up in the past couple of months of these interviews. And that was definitely one of those moments, like where, where were you when moments, right? Uh, when, when, oh, that's interesting. Other people have been talking about, about yeah, that. Absolutely. In what context, like what kind of books? Um, mostly in context of like music books <laughs> um, or books that, have, right, right, that right, take yeah. place kind of in that era, um, which this one does too. Um, but um yeah, I just think that 
you know, um, I, in a way that I don't hear from people of like, oh, when I heard Jim Morrison died or, you know, any of the other folks who died when they were 27, uh, seems like when Kurt Cobain died was a bigger deal for a lot of people. I mean, um, even when Kurt Cobain died, I understood that there was nothing romantic about suicide. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought, you know, he has this child. I thought he had this moment in Rome and he had this ability to save himself mm -hmm. and he didn't. And how could he have this ch child mm -hmm. and, and, and have this happen? And obviously he had a very bad drug addiction, but, you know, I, I would say that that's a symptom of, you know, the la larger issue of his, his depression. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I do think that he, he was so much of our contemporary at that time, mm -hmm. if you're my age, like 52 years old, mm -hmm. and he was so young and was so, you know, was the, was like just the best at what he did. And he, and the idea that he couldn't figure out how to keep going that he couldn't figure out how to just walk away like Salinger. It's yeah. always been very sad to me. I also spent a lot of time thinking about David Foster Wallace's suicide yeah. and the idea that somebody as smart as David Foster Wallace, who went and you know did get the electroshock therapy, knew that he was you know potentially maybe gonna, at least for the short term, mess with his memory. You know that he was so desperate to get better, to be okay. Um, I, I think we have to, I think it, we need to try to remember those stories so that people feel less bad about getting help. Yeah. Because even when the superhero people, mm -hmm. you know, can't figure it out. Um, yeah, I think so too. Also the second time today that David Foster Wallace has been brought up. And um, I think oh, no. when, you, when you read him, can't you just, see his brain moving like a million miles an hour though <laughs> i mean yeah i mean i've never i, I can't pretend to have read infinite jest or yeah. uh, but i've read all his short stories and his mm -hmm. essays um you know alex trebek you couldn't not think of alex trebek of his essay yeah. and there have been many moments where i was like what an asshole he would have just written the best fucking essay on trump he would have just mm -hmm. written you know the he it would have been great to know what his mind thought. But um, I think though, in all fairness, and this applies to Kurt Cobain and David Foster Wallace, I think what people also need to realize, I have a very good friend. Um, his name is Gary Goldman. He's a comedian and he has a very uh, wonderful special on HBO um, mm -hmm. about having gotten electroshock therapy. And when Gary was very sick and I, I went to him, I had actually been writing a book about electroshock therapy. His, he talks about this, but his psychiatrist, you know, told him he needed electroshock therapy. And I went to his house, he called me and I was like, oh, it's not gonna be bad. It'll be like, Zzz, you know, and we, we tried to joke about it, mm -hmm. but he did the extraordinarily brave thing of going and doing it. And, you know, when you're a stand-up comic, you're, you're, uh, ability to retrieve information quickly and respond inf to information quickly is, is everything. Mm -hmm. God knows I could not be a stand-up comic because my thoughts just get all tangled. Um, but I remember sitting in my kitchen at some point and saying to him, if you want to get better, you actually have to take your ego completely out of it. And your whole mission in life is just to figure out how to get better. 
you, you know, you have to decide like, oh, I might, you know, never go to the comedy cellar and performing. That's okay because I want to just be around for the next day. And I, I do think that both for David Foster Wallace, but more for Kurt Cobain, um, being able to do that, you know, just to say, I'm going to walk away. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be, it's more important for me to be alive than to, to play in front of all these people. Um, if, if he could have done that, you know, maybe, maybe he would have been able to buy the time to get better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Amy. Um, finally, um, you alluded to this a little bit earlier, um, and I'm speaking of societal pressures and a woman's body. Uh, Julie feels an immense pressure and perhaps even an immense need uh, to breastfeed her daughter, Rachel, her newborn daughter, uh, for six months, which means that she is bucking her daughter's, her doctor's orders to go back on her medication, uh, her antidepressives, um, as soon as Rachel is born. Why does Julie feel this pressure to breastfeed her daughter? Is the pressure self-imposed or imposed by society? And how does this type of pressure affect women who suffer from depression, postpartum, or otherwise? Well, that that very much goes back to the women in the coffee shop. Mm. Um, Even if it's unintentional, I think this idea of what's a good mother... uh, is something we all perpetuate to kind of, on one hand, like the, the nicest way to say it is to give ourselves, uh, what's it called when you're bowling and those guardrails. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think when you're depressed, the way you hear these things is completely different. And um, for me, I knew, I, I mean, I, I, like I said, I, I basically prayed to the jar of Zoloft. I was like, okay, you know, 30 more days, 29 more days. And then, when my daughter Anna was born and she was lying against my chest, she just started breastfeeding. She was like the most gentle little breastfeeder. And I thought it's actually six weeks. I only need to make it through six weeks mm-hmm. to give her everything that she said at the time that you needed, you know, so mm-hmm. that she wouldn't have asthma. I don't know. There were all these nutrients, you know, the cholesterol, cholesterol, um, mm-hmm. I'm getting what it's called, but, uh, and I thought like you've been, you shouldn't have your weakness and your, you know, uh, inability to bounce back quickly and all the things that I know are not true, but I was sure they were true. You've, you've made it through nine months. You can make it through another six weeks. Mm -hmm. And I brought her home from the hospital and I didn't tell my husband that I wasn't taking the medication. And, um, then a couple days into it, I realized I, I saw this train like about to hit a wall and I thought, Oh my goodness, this is not good. And I called him and I said, I'm not taking the medication. When you come home, make me take the medication and look under my tongue and make sure I took the medication because I was so um, unsure of what was real and and what was my, you know, mind spinning. Mm -hmm. Um, And so earlier, I do think that there's an enormous amount of pressure on women and it's, you know, different, much harder now because of Instagram. Um, I always say to my daughter, like, thank goodness they didn't have that when you were little. Cause like when she went to kindergarten, I would decorate the brown bag with some crayons, both of my children and be like, have a great day with a flower. And now, you know, you go on Instagram and people like 
every grilled cheese is like a three-dimensional <laughs> pop-up art. Um, but on the other hand, there are also people who are speaking out. Like my daughter said, you really need to look at this uh, Instagrammer birds, birds papaya. I think her name is. She shows what you really look like after you give birth. Mm. She talks about, you know, having perinatal depression when she was pregnant. And I thought, you know, a lot has changed. A lot has gotten better because look, here's my daughter saying to me, Hey, I, I somehow that woman got into her feed that mm -hmm. she told, I think that's called, that she told me to, to, um, you know, look this woman up and, and, um, I find real hope in, in that. I hope that when she grows up by the time, well, she's older now, but by the time she has a baby, there'll be a way to quantify depression, you know, the degree of the depression, like how you can measure, uh, oxygen, um, if you have asthma mm -hmm. and, uh, I the, I want, there's something I forgot to say about Ethan, and this is totally out of um, order, and I apologize for that, but, uh, you know, when this book came out, obviously it wasn't a, a bestseller. It was very hard, um, but the people who read it, it really helped them, and the notes that I got really meant something, and it, the every so often, I would get a note, like I remember one note where this a uh, woman wrote, she had sent a picture of her baby. She was told to go on antidepressants. She didn't want to. Her husband had taken her to the doctor. The doctor had given him this book to read to understand. And he understood. And she went on medication. And she wanted me to see the baby. And I've had many of, of those. And for that reason, it's important that that Ethan character exists. Because if you love somebody who's very depressed, and you don't know, you should ask other people, how bad is this really? What can I do? What support should I provide? Um, you know, how can I put the scaffolding up uh, around her and our family so that I can protect it? Mm -hmm. um, sorry, that was out of order, but oh, um, that, was that is my hopes also for the book is that we've learned to forgive ourselves for not loving for not being able to save people because we don't know all the time. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that thought about Ethan, Amy, and thank you for writing this book and turning it into a film. It is an important book that is still sparking discussion almost two decades after it was written and published for the first time. Uh, I look forward to seeing the film um, and undoubtedly losing more sleep after I've seen it. Uh, but um, I know that it's going to be fantastic. Um, listeners, I've been speaking with Amy Koppelman, author of A Mouthful of Air, which is published by our friends at $2 Radio. Amy, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Once again, I would like to thank Amy Koppelman for joining me. Copies of A Mouthful of Air can be ordered at www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping for members of Readers Club Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsors, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's P-O-O-K-I-N in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Booking.